0: I'm author and critic David Agronoff. I'm a horror and science fiction author, critic, and researcher. In this podcast, I wanted to provide in-depth interviews and panel discussions with everyone from New York Times bestselling authors to researchers, musicians, and anyone I find interesting. Welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. welcome to postcards from a dying world i am your host david agronoff and i am the author of the last night to kill nazis which is out nationwide in barnes and nobles i gotta take a second to at least pitch that um out there before we get into david Mack and his book my guest and i also because i know there's a bunch of you star trek people that are coming to this podcast for the first time uh and if you are out there and you are Star Trek people hang around subscribe because we cover lots of science fiction I'm currently doing a series on the history of the science fiction hall of fame I'm doing all kinds of panels the next episode after this one will be Robert Heinlein's The Roads Must Roll from 1940 Um, and so I'm bringing in these like awesome panels to talk about with experts and academics to talk about these stories we've already done uh, Martian Odyssey by Stanley Weinbaum. We've done Helen Aloy by Lester Delroy and, um, and John W. Campbell's Twilight are all out there. So check those out. So if you're new to this podcast, what we do is we get under the hood with writers, um, uh, mostly science fiction and horror. And when we're not doing panel episodes, we have guests, we usually focus down on a book. Now, I have to admit, I only got David's book uh, like two days ago, so I've only read the first 100 pages, but we're still going to get deeply into it. And he's promoting a Star Trek Picard tie-in novel called Firewall, which uh, we will get to in a bit. But first, David, how did you get involved with, how did you discover science fiction, Star Trek? How did you become um, the envy of nerds everywhere?
1: Well, that's a lot of questions rolled into one. Yeah, uh, sorry. Let's let's, let's, I let's start, start big. The, yeah, yeah, well, let's, we'll, we'll take, let's take it apart and we'll examine it piece by piece. Uh, Star Trek, where did I, how did I get exposed to Star Trek? Well, as I like to say, uh, I imprinted on it the way a duckling imprints on the first moving thing it sees. I grew up watching the reruns, the syndicated reruns of Trek in the early 70s. So I must have rewatched every episode about 10, 20 times before Star Trek The Motion Picture came out. And uh, so I I was a Trek fan pretty much right from the beginning. Trek formed my worldview. It, uh, it, It basically set the template for the future I would hope to see. One of people choosing to work together in friendship and cooperation and in peace to explore the galaxy. Uh, to, you know, seek out new mysteries and, uh, you know, push, the, the push forward the edges of human knowledge. Uh, and so that, of course, you know, was a great foundation from which to discover more science fiction, starting from Trek. Uh, it also helped that I loved books from the very beginning, loved having, you know, my mom read to me as a little kid. And then as I got older, when she would run weekend errands, she would drop me off at the town library i'd stay down in the kids section and the librarians would make sure i didn't wander off and go staggering into traffic or something and i would stay down there and sometimes i'd read you know the the charlie brown comic collections but i also would dig into the science fiction books i remember one of the first science fiction books i ever read was called the space eagle uh, maybe you know not a pulitzer prize-winning book you know perhaps not a yugo contender but it was fun Nuclear threat on Christmas Day, and the Space Eagle hero has to, you know, prevent Armageddon or whatever, and negotiate peace and and whatnot.
0: So, was that uh, one written by? I I I have an encyclopedic knowledge of science fiction, and you
1: have to look it up. I I actually don't remember the name of the author. I I always remember the title. Title. I I looked it up one time. It, It it's out there. It's like there's rare copies of it floating around used that you can buy on like ebay it's a very obscure title but i remember it it made an impression on my young brain uh and from there i read you know pierre Boulle's uh version of planet of the apes uh i i read that version before i saw the film version so i actually had his version in my head first uh i started reading bradbury uh very young i loved bradbury uh, so I grew up reading all his stuff: Martian Chronicles, the Illustrated Man, uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes. I mean, I, I was I was into all of it, and then of course that led me to Asimov, that led me to Heinlein, uh, that led me to Clark. So going through a lot of the old sort of old white guy masters of that particular era, um, and I, then I got into cinematic science fiction. Uh, obviously with Star Trek and then Star Wars uh, I, I love Star Wars in its own right as much as I I, I love Star Trek Star Trek is my first love I also really dig Star Wars yeah um, they're very different but I think they have complementary messages uh, Star Trek is it's better to have a future where we work together in peace and and you know democratic socialism and all that sort of thing um, and that's beautiful uh, but what Star Wars reminds us is, there are always going to be autocratic fascist nut jobs among you who are going to try to burn it all down and every generation is going to have to fight this fight again it's never really over the idiots are always out there and every generation has a responsibility to defend what others have fought for in the past and make sure that it perseveres and gets passed down to the future so star trek is the hopeful message of what we can have if we choose to work together and Star Wars is the reminder, it ain't going to be free and you're going to have to fight to protect it.
0: Right. And uh, so do you have like a favorite uh, science fiction author from that era that, you know, like I'm a John Bruner and Philip K. Dick guy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, who's my science fiction people. But do you have like ones that you're devoted to or?
1: Um... I guess it would have to be Bradbury. I mean, Bradbury yeah. just made the biggest influence on me. I loved, especially his short fiction pieces like, uh, you know, The Velt, uh, yeah, which sort of you know was all about holodecks, really. Um, and then he had one; uh, I think it was, I think he wrote a story. I'm pretty sure it was this, called The Long Rain. Mm. Uh, I, I did an homage to that in one of my recent Star Trek novels, uh, where the landing party goes to a planet where it's always raining, uh, and not for any darn a whole different planet. Yeah. Um, So yeah, I mean, I I grew up really loving Bradbury's work and I remember getting term papers, I would write papers about him in high school. Uh, In one I sort of examined the fact that he's got this rather pessimistic attitude toward technology, technology unfettered, uh, technology that runs amok or that uh, is perverted away from its original intended use is very often uh, the antagonistic force in a lot of his short fiction, humans very often find themselves at the mercy of technology run amuck, or technology that proves more dangerous than they ever imagined. And I thought it was interesting that for a writer known primarily to the American public as a science fiction writer, that he seemed to have such a anti-technology attitude that pervades a, a lot of his work. Uh, so I remember writing a paper about that in high school. Uh, but despite this, you know, particular oddity of his, uh, <laughs> just, he re- I can tell you, I, I remember he is the childhood favorite author.
0: Yeah. So if you're ever in Indianapolis for WonderCon, or if you ever do that, make sure you go to the Ray Bradbury center that now exists in Indianapolis. They moved his entire office and everything from it in um los angeles to uh, to indiana university in indianapolis because the world's leading expert in ray bradbury was a professor there before he died and if i go to
1: indianapolis it'll be for gen con
0: gen con i thought i thought it was wonder no you're right okay so i grew up in indiana so i i gotta put a shout out for uh indiana nerdery but um last time i was home i went to the bradbury center and i got to sit in his writing chair and yes it's there now he didn't write everything he didn't write fahrenheit 451 in that chair but he did write something wicked this way comes and if you plan it and you talk to the ray Barry brad ray bradbury center they have a vhs of the original cut of something wicked this way comes mm-hmm. the one that bradbury watched himself and gave notes wow. on yeah very okay. cool stuff.
1: So I, I'm not going to be going back to Gen Con this year, but I may go back in uh you know some future year and I'll keep that in mind.
0: Well, now you got more of a reason to go. Uh oh. <laughs> shout out to Indiana uh for that. And uh they also have the Kurt Vonnegut Museum there because he's from Oh love Vonnegut. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's from Indianapolis. Yeah. So just shout out on that. Uh some of my friends and I are doing that for uh the day before or the weekend before the solar eclipse um coming up. And uh, yeah, so what? So you were into all this science fiction. When did you start writing? Like, how did what you know? Uh, because you ended up writing Star Trek. Was it fan fiction or was it original stuff? Um, that you started what?
1: I mean, when uh, when I first started trying to put words on paper, uh, I guess it was more autobiographical, you know, memoir type crap that most teens with a lot of angst and too much time are are want to do. Uh, I didn't have any real map for what I was trying to write. I just sort of had this daydream of seeing my name on a book cover. Uh, And this was maybe around like the age of nine or 10. And I would just start randomly typing pages. Uh, I had a knack for remembering other people's stories, but concocting my own out of thin air did not come naturally, at least not at first. Uh, So I would, you know, just sort of watch a movie and I could recount the tale of the movie the next day at breakfast, much to my parents' chagrin. Uh, So I was doing that for a while. And I guess what really sort of broke me through into writing was screenwriting. Uh, And that kind of came together around the age of 15. My mom was taking business classes at night at a local community college. She saw they had a screenwriting class, same night and times as her class. And so I got permission from my high school to take college level screenwriting at the community college and at 15 I went in, did a semester, aced the class, got it, you know, got an A in it. Uh, the, the instructor really liked my work. And then I had the screenwriting bug and that's pretty much how I ended up going to NYU film school, got my degree there. Uh, That led to uh, writing for the College Humor magazine for a while. That led to working in magazines as an editor after I graduated, uh, which is a remarkably terrible paying job. And that hasn't changed. Um, Yes. (laughs) And so what I got, though, is I I was writing scripts. And Star Trek had uh, Next Generation premiered my freshman year at college. Around the second year of Next Gen, they had what's called an open door policy where anybody who wanted to write a full script had to be a script not a story proposal a script in proper tv format you could submit your spec script and it would go into a giant slush pile and they would pay interns and whatever to go through and read these and try to find anyone that doesn't suck and you know 999 uh out of a thousand actually more like you know 999 or whatever you know uh, or 9999 out of ten thousand would get thrown away Almost nobody ever made it out of the slush pile. And so I started submitting scripts to the slush pile and collecting rejection letters. You were never allowed to have more than two scripts on submission at a time. And so there was this sort of circular, you know, uh, circulating pattern for me where I would just keep sending them in, collecting the rejections, never really knowing why. Never broke through at next gen, but they had the same policy at DS9. So eventually uh, I, you know, switched writing partners a couple of times. Found one who had connections that would, could let us pitch. He and I figured out we had a good rhythm working together uh, as scriptwriters. This he would got be John Ordover, right? That was John Ordover. Yeah, who has uh, been
0: he, on this podcast before? So
1: he, uh, at the time, was the editor of Star Trek fiction at uh, Simon and Schuster. My so favorite era, had...
0: by the way. Hmm? <laughs> That's one of my. That was foundational era of star trek
1: fiction for me i yeah, love the order era yeah so. the late 90s early aughts yeah yeah because uh, he would come over from tor books uh before that i believe mm-hmm. uh, but anyway so yeah he and i teamed up he got us the pitch meeting i had the script writing chops uh we made some sales right off the bat so my breakthrough my first work as a writer professionally in fiction was writing for star trek on television Uh, I'd never actually sold fiction in prose format to anybody before. I hadn't written any books, hadn't done comics yet. Uh, So my breakthrough was TV.
0: And an excellent episode too. Thank you. Starship Uh, Down, right? That was the first one. Yeah.
1: Starship Down. And then the second one was called It's Only a Paper Moon. And that was in season seven. Uh, We also sold to Voyager, although the... um, it ended up not getting to script. It ended up not getting produced uh, for reasons that had nothing to do with our story and just all about logistical problems in-house that were insurmountable. They liked the story. They bought it. They paid for it. They cannibalized some of it for parts over the years, but it never got made, which is too bad. I think it would have been a great episode. But uh, that was what sort of broke me through that that was the the breakthrough moment got me a a credit suddenly i could go to cons and you know get onto panels because hey i've written for star trek on tv and suddenly that makes me somebody that you know gets put on a panel i'm like all right sure we'll do that and started making connections and i started working in the pocketbooks office as an assistant uh, on a freelance basis which mostly meant reading slush manuscripts and finding a reason to reject them writing the letters of those rejections. So the editors didn't have to waste their time doing it. Uh, writing reference materials for other Star Trek authors like Peter David, Michael Jan Friedman. Uh, and then eventually when something would come up there where they needed, let's say, pat out a manuscript, that's come up a little bit short at the last minute, and it's already late. Uh, they say they came to me one weekend and said, you know, on a Friday, by Monday morning, can you get us 5000 words? in the format of a classified Starfleet report about the Genesis device, not being a fool, I said, yes, of course, I can do that. And sure. then figured out how to do it and scrambled through the whole weekend, came in, turned it in. And that became, I believe, chapter 14 of John Bornhold's Genesis Wave book one. And from that, they said, Okay, you know, you, you execute quickly, you do clean work. Uh, you know, do you want to tackle a book, and I said, why would I not want to tackle a book? So they had a book that was already approved, the Starfleet Survival Guide. The concept had been developed in-house. They had an illustrator. There was an editor. They just needed somebody to write the damn thing. They said, do you want to write it? I said, let me get this straight. I don't have to pitch a book. You've already got it approved. We don't have to find it. It's all greenlit. I just come in, write it, and you pay me, and I get my name on the cover. They said, yep. I went, done. Let's do it. (laughs) Let's do this thing. And so that was what led me into writing for Star Trek in print was the Starfleet survival guide. Based on that, they said, Hey, you can finish a book. Do you want to pitch to our new line of ebook novellas, our you know, monthly ebook novellas? I said, Hell yeah. And that got me into fiction. And then after a couple of those, the second one uh, called Wildfire big tragedy, but also, you know, a big seller, uh, you know, made a big splash, got lots of great critical notice. And off that, I, you know, got the call, which was, hey, you know, somebody just dropped out of our big nine book event for the fall next year, you know, can you take on writing two full length novels back to back? And can you execute it in five months? Yeah. Went, uh, yeah, yeah, I could do that you always say, yes, somebody's offering you a paid book contract. You say, yes, I can do that. So I did that uh, while at the same time, you know, getting ready to get married and go on a honeymoon and deal with everything else and moving. Uh, But uh, that broke through one of those books at the USA Today list. And I've been writing Star Trek novels ever since. Well, and
0: this is why I'm incredibly jealous of you and Greg Cox and, and Dayton Ward and all these guys, because, I know how writer brain watches Star Trek, and I know oh. when you guys are watching Star Trek, and let's say um, Captain Pike in an episode of Strange New Worlds makes a random comment about you know, um, well, you know, Rigel Seven was 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 a terrible thing but, compared to this, but compared to this, and then the next thing you know, before you fall asleep that night, you've got a whole episode written in your head which maybe can become a novel. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, you know, I got a notebook full of these. I can't do anything with them because no one's paying me to write them. But uh, you guys do. And, you know, when When we get lucky. Yes. And so when you watch Star Trek, are you constantly like jotting down notes of like, oh, I can use this later. And is this?
1: I see possibilities. Uh, What I look for often is the, uh, the lingering question uh you know something right. where they mention something and it raises the question of well what was that and uh why was that formative and what was important about that they don't go into it yeah. that could be explored anytime you find yourself saying well wait a minute what was that well boom yeah the moment you've done that you've asked a compelling dramatic question this can compel you to go find a story once you tie it into a human story something that somebody actually cares about, congratulations, you just found a story. And the more a universe like Star Trek gets built out, the more of these lingering questions uh, there seem to be. Rather than exhausting story possibilities, the more developed a fictional universe like this gets, the more story possibilities it generates. It becomes more complex and more integrated, living thing and you begin to see possible story connections everywhere uh yeah. so in that respect it's a very fertile ground just because it is so deep and layered and has been around for so long that there's always another question to ask
0: yeah well and here's my perfect segue into uh <laughs> Picard firewall because for me the moment the Fenris Rangers were mentioned and seven, my brain started like concocting all kinds of, and that's why, you know, when you first announced this book, I was one of the first people to comment on Facebook, like you lucky dog. This is the story that, because my first thought was that should be a series. That should be its own. That's series. What I thought.
1: I'm yeah. surprised they didn't do it.
0: Right. And because one thing that, i would like to see star trek do more of no one's listening to me right but i would like to see star trek get away from starfleet i would like to see st- star trek tr- i good.
1: tried to steer prodigy that direction uh i was overruled right and
0: like i said i could talk to you for hours about the dozen different projects that you've worked on and i and and maybe you, we can come back some other time and dive deeper into those and. Um, I I watched you hilariously comment on some of the things that happened with you and Prodigy, which was a great show. I love Prodigy. Oh, but, I love
1: Prodigy. It's one of my yeah. favorite things that Star Trek has done uh, ever.
0: Yeah, and um, <laughs> so I, I'm a I'm a massive Prodigy fan. Uh, the finale brought a tear to my eye, like literally, like was beautiful, thing. Be, beautiful. But the Federus Rangers and doing stories that are outside of, you know, that's one of the things that makes Deep Space Nine great is so many non-Starfleet characters and mm-hmm. it expands the world. And so what I love about Firewall is that, you know, Janeway's there and there's a little bit of Starfleet here and there, but it's, it's not... A story of Starfleet. It's the story of Sevens basically coming of age in in yeah. this situation. And you know, if I were marketing this book, I would blurb it this way: "This is Star Trek's Andor, right?"
1: Because that's that's, that's high praise. That's a heck of a show to compare it to.
0: Well, at least you know I'm only going on the first hundred pages. However, what yeah. I'm what I'm seeing is is that this is, um, you know, Seven gets turned down by Starfleet, right? Which is an interesting thing.
1: And I I want to... That's from canon. That's from Picard.
0: Right. She gets turned by... And and I thought you did a really good job of dealing with that in the book because when that was said in Picard, I was like, why the hell would they turn down such a competent person? But Mm -hmm. the trauma of the Borg years is so deep. And... I think and remember walking. when Voyager
1: comes home, it's 2378. They're only five years out from the last time the Borg were on Earth's doorstep and very nearly assimilated the whole planet. They right. they very narrowly avoided apocalypse, and they're only five years out from that. This is like almost like having a 9-11 event.
0: Right. Right. And I think that you do a really good job in this book of, of setting that up. And and so. What I think is really, um, you know, the first thing that I loved about this book was the fact that it's not on a starship, that it's in corners and you're seeing several different planets. And, you know, it comes with a map in the beginning. So it gives you a, a real sense of geography for what's going on in this corner of the Star Trek universe. And I think that expands it. It makes it deeper and better and like you know my writer brain when i watch star trek a lot of times i'm trying to like i wish they would do more to remember that they're in space right <laughs> like to do space science to do those things and so what i really liked about this book is that it grounds the the story in in the in the real world with um or or in the real world of star trek by making it you know so let's talk about that geography and how much of that you know um you know some of it was established in Una McCormick's book about the um last about, best yeah which i thought was incredible which i think is a, a really great start tie in novel because it also brings in the politics of all this so like all this canon from Picard um and mm-hmm. i'm a huge i I'm a defender for the same reasons of the first season of Picard that it's non-Starfleet. Um, I love that. So how did you approach the canon of this from Picard? Did you rewatch the show a bunch of times? Did you, or did, or, or did you already have it pretty imprinted? Did these ideas well, come to you easy on this?
1: Well, for instance, as just as you did, the moment Fenris Rangers came on the screen uh I believe it was either in episode four when you know they mentioned the word Fenris Rangers after seven uh comes to their rescue and they her ship is lost and they beam her aboard. It was either then or during st- uh Stardust City Rag the following week. One of those I paused the episode, picked up my phone, and immediately emailed my editor and said, I want to write a Fenris Rangers novel. You know, and you know, my editor's a nighthawk like me. She responds at like two in the morning, you and everyone else. Uh, She said, but (laughs) no, the the show producers have told us to go hands off with the Fenris Rangers, at least for now. They don't know how they intend to use them going forward. We have to wait before we can play with that particular toy in the toy box. A Couple of years later, I'm at lunch with my editors soliciting work. And they said, well, we finally were told we can play with the Fenris Rangers toy. Would you like to write the story of how, when, and why seven joins the fenris rangers i said why yes i would (laughs) so i jumped on that story i mean that was one that i thought you know was ripe with possibilities and i had already watched all of picard you know during its first run i uh of course had copies of the scripts i'm on like a lot of the distribution lists, so i was seeing like stuff from behind the scenes uh finding out stuff from my friends who work at cbs So I had a lot of, you know, research material already at hand. Uh, And then as I began to dig into this particular story, Seven's story, that was when I began seeing the possibilities. I started tying all the threads together. And that was what led to this story. And I was like, you know, how do I justify what has been said in canon where she says she tried to join Starfleet. She was denied. She applied to the Academy. She was told to get lost. She said, at that point, I just went full ranger. That's her line. I went full ranger. And the way she says it, it sounds like it's very cause and effect. Because of this, this. They did this, so I did that. And that, to me, felt like it's not something where there's going to be a long delay between the action and the reaction. They do this, so she does that. So I said, okay, this probably happened pretty soon after Voyager came home. And then I began to look at what was established about the Voyager crew uh, in shows like Prodigy, where they started talking about some of their backstory, because they make extensive use of Janeway, Mm -hmm. uh, both Admiral Janeway and their holographic version of Janeway. And I knew from that that, okay, Voyager got put basically into museum status almost immediately after it got home. It got taken out of commission as a ship of the line. Chakotay got promoted and sent over to the Protostar project, so he's already on a top secret, you know, brand new cutting edge thing over here. Tom and B'Elanna go off to have their kid. Harry Kim finally gets a long overdue promotion and gets put back on Starship duty. Tuvok gets a job at Starfleet Command. The doctor's off doing a speaking tour for holographic sentient rights. Everybody's off doing their own thing, which means that Seven's found family. Her emotional safety net that she's relied on for years is just gone. Like she's come home to a planet she's really never been to, or if she has, she doesn't remember it to an aunt. She barely remembers to a culture. She doesn't know her found family is gone except for Janeway, who's trying to do things for her. And she comes back to a culture she was told would welcome her home. And instead it treats her with fear. suspicion she has clear borg implants that she can't remove without basically killing herself and they question her motives they question her background even the fact that she doesn't want to have her federation name like they're going to try and resurrect her they thought she was dead 20 some years ago and suddenly they got a resurrector and they go okay well we'll pull up the records for annika hansen she says no my name is seven of nine well, that's going to freak them out a little bit because that's a Borg designation. That's the last thing they want to hear at that point. Mm. And What does that tell them? That she identifies as Borg? That she, you know, is, is she, uh, you know, in league with them? Does she still, uh, you know, see herself as being aligned with them? Why would she choose to keep that designation? And so this just raises a lot of alarm bells in a culture that's already scarred. Uh, and has not quite you know gotten used to they they haven't really ever dealt with an ex-borg they haven't dealt with liberated borg yet when she first comes home she's one of the first they've encountered and they don't know what to make of her so Mm -hmm. she comes home and this life she's been promised isn't there she's not welcome um she's treated in many ways like a pariah and what happens is in the book at one point you know and in the uh I think in some of the Picard episodes, she said, you know that she didn't want to put Janeway's career at risk because Janeway kept putting herself out there and threatening to walk, you know, threatening to resign her commission. And she makes it sound like she walked away for Janeway's benefit. And my take on that was that's what she says. But the reality is is that seven had to get out of there because she felt humiliated. She felt angry. She felt rejected. And she was afraid and she rationalizes it by saying, well, you know, I, I don't want any more political blowback to hit my friend Janeway. But what's really happening is, is she saying, you people have told me I'm trash. You've told me I'm not welcome here. Uh, you've told me I don't have any rights and you don't respect who I am. And you're afraid of me and I'm not safe. And, I'm, and you've humiliated me and I'm going to go find a better life. And that's what's really going on with her. So you were right. I mean, you hit it right on the head when you said a coming-of-age tale. This is structured like a classic Bildungsroman. It is the character must leave home uh, to go on a journey of self-discovery. They will face trials and adversity. And through that adversity, they will achieve maturity and independence. And that is essentially the story of Firewall. It's about Seven finally having to leave home cut that metaphorical apron string that connects her to Janeway her surrogate mother figure and go out into the galaxy and try to figure out who the hell she is after having all of her formative years stolen by the borg yeah uh, she you know she lost her childhood her adolescence and her young adulthood all gone the years really, we all take for granted when we figure out who we are it, they it stole really it from her
0: her time on voyager and when when i had Brandon Braga on this show, I kind of, we talked about Voyager, her years on Voyager as being her Starfleet Academy. So one of the things that makes it ultra insulting to her to be turned down by Starfleet Academy is I've been serving on a starship. In an extreme situation, and I saved their ass a million times,
1: right? Well, she also mutinied, tried to steal the ship a whole bunch of times and did so (laughs) using violence. Which would have the problem. Right. She's unpredictable. She's a wild card.
0: And what I think part of what you're doing with firewall and doing the coming of age story is bridging that gap between the seven who was the wild card on Voyager, but super skilled to the captain of the Enterprise G, right? And uh, uh, I'm not
1: even so much thinking about that as just trying to get her to where she would be a Fenris Ranger. I'm just right. trying to get her to independence. The other thing that I wanted to address was we went from she had this very cis heteronormative uh, sort of acclimation period aboard Voyager. Uh, but by the time we catch up with her in Picard, she's clearly has embraced and become comfortable with the fact that she is queer she's very clearly bisexual at at the very least yeah
0: uh and, we'll, and that... we'll, come, we'll come back to that because i you've been very uh clear about what this book does with that and i have questions sure. on that and i want to get All there right. we'll get there Fine. we'll get there um but what i think um you know this is a huge part of when you see where seven is in season three of picard
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know you have to see um you have to see a lot of those roots and how they grew. And um, I think obviously they want the mentorship of Picard to, to mean something, but we also have to see where she, how she gets to the point where you owe me a ship, Picard is her introduction to him. Mm-hmm. And that's where I say, this is kind of like the Andor of, of, of set of modern Star Trek, because what, what you have going on here is um a story of a of a rebel you know and doing that now as a as a 30 year a 30 year vegan there is a funny scene in this book where seven is trying to get a replic Her replicator will only make kimchi and i just wanted to ask did you imply here that seven of nine is a vegetarian because i am in favor of this but it seemed like she did not want to eat uh, replicated meat in that scene. Uh, it's a little it's not, thing, but
1: important. It's not, it's, yeah, I guess, I mean, I don't know so much that she's a strict vegetarian uh, right. or a strict vegan. It's just that at that particular moment, she wanted vegetarian. You know, she 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 had an appetite for something specific, and the stupid replicator just wouldn't make it. Uh, she doesn't seem to have much of a problem scene. with you know the uh, the cuisine that's served in the mess hall uh, <clears throat> of the Fenris Rangers, where they're talking about the meat adjacent identifier. I don't know if you've gotten to that part yet.
0: I did get to that part. Yes. Yeah. we're talking about that's the meat identifier. The why... doesn't, that doesn't bother her. Okay,
1: so she's not averse to meat, especially. you know, She's probably not going to worry about it because by that point in the twenty fourth century. Most of it is probably synthetically produced protein. Exactly. It's lab-grown protein that doesn't actually come from an actual sentient animal. Uh, it's probably mostly lab-synthesized protein, or even just molecularly resequenced protein. Uh, <laughs> vegetarian or vegan diet at that point would be more uh, of a health, uh, you know, and, and dietary. Uh, you know, concern than a a moral concern at that point, since the animal has been taken out of the equation. Uh, But, you know, there could still be moral arguments made, uh, etc, etc. But I don't, I didn't intend to say that she was necessarily strict vegetarian, but simply that she wanted vegetarian lasagna, she likes it, and the stupid machine wouldn't make it.
0: (laughs) Now, one of the reasons why this, I think, sets up, and, and again, I make the or comparison, is this is a noir story. It, it, it is a very, um, yeah. it, it has noir edges, it has noir. It's very setting. cyberpunk, I think is yes. how
1: somebody else described it.
0: Yeah, it has that kind of vibe or tone to the setting. Not so it's much
1: very, the, the urban sections are very Blade Runner.
0: Yes, and so that's one thing I want to put out there that people should know about this book. But I think, um, and I had to resist posting something on Facebook about you doing this and saving this for the interview. But you got a word into the Star Trek universe. Now, everyone got excited when Tilly said that's fucking cool for the first time. But you got a word into the Star Trek universe that I am super excited that you did. And that is, you got the word mosh into Star Trek. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and
0: you have seven of nine uh, meeting her first Andorian uh, encounter with uh, w- encounter with an- a one night stand, one night stand in the middle of a mosh pit. And you explain why seven enjoys the mosh pit and the communal nature of when somebody falls down, you pick somebody up. Um, you know, I'm a, a, an old school hardcore kid. I come from uh, punk rock backgrounds. And so uh,
1: that then, was my experience with Mosh Bits when uh, you know, I was out in the West Coast and uh, out in like, the San Jose area.
0: Yeah, um, I love that. That was a great scene. Um, it's a very
1: punk book. It's a, a lot of punk music inspired this book, uh, particularly new punk like Amel and the Sniffers out of uh, Australia.
0: Awesome um so i want people to know that that you you worked mosh into that now
1: i was also the first writer to get the word fuck into the star trek universe on an official basis
0: oh I really beat, I, beat,
1: I beat tv to it by years and which book was that uh, star trek vanguard book five precipice the character of cervantes quinn soldier of fortune uh is on a planet with bridget mcclellan aka Bridie mac who's a Starfleet <laughs> intelligence agent at that point the Klingons invade the planet. He decides to defend the locals. Brady Mac says, we can't get involved. It's a prime directive problem. And he looks at her and he says, yeah, well, I ain't in Starfleet, so fuck your prime directive. And he grabs a <laughs> weapon and he leaves the ship. Uh, and it got through. Uh, so I, I got the, the F-bomb into Star Trek uh, somewhere around maybe 2010. I, I beat them to it by several years. That's cool. That's
0: cool, but you got Mosh in there. I, and, got mosh. Uh, I did get and, Mosh. And you put seven of nine in a Mosh pit. And so I, I gotta I gotta give you credit for that. Um uh for me it's funny that that I definitely was like uh because you know what was funny is because as I said, I, I've definitely thought about the Fenris Rangers before, and so I was very curious how you were gonna do all this, and I <laughs> And I had the thought, now, I don't know if I would have pushed that particular envelope. So, credit to David Mack for doing that. Uh, Wonderful. Um, Which envelope?
1: The mosh pit envelope?
0: Yes. I I love that, you know, uh, that you did that. I wanted to explore
1: her life in exile as, you know, she's searching for herself. You know, I wanted to at least take some time so that we could feel like we were on that part of her personal journey with her.
0: Yeah. Keep talking, I'm going to let my dog out of my office. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I really enjoyed writing the the scenes with Seven uh, sort of in exile. Uh, little things like when she's going to work and she chooses a place to work that reminds her of the inside of a board cube. Uh, or when she's like out on the streets and she's wearing like a deep, you know, sort of a hooded cowl. Uh, because she's trying to hide the Borg implants between that and her hair, because she knows, while well, she can probably take any one of these people one-on-one in a fight. She knows that if you get an angry mob around you, you're screwed. Uh, oh, yeah. And she has learned to live with a healthy amount of well, healthy amount of fear and suspicion. She's learned not to trust people, especially not large groups of them. So... Right. Well, on her mind.
0: well, and so, you know, and then my question now is, we'll do a little bit more selling um, of this book here, but uh, I think at this point, if you're a Star Trek fan and you haven't already like said, okay, I definitely need to read this one. um, I think, you know, seven of nine, the trajectory of the character, especially because I think a lot of us all had that same reaction. The first time they showed her without the the Borg makeup of being kind of like, Oh, come on, what are we doing? You know, because, you know, the I think the fact that she's turned into such a great character when it was kind of a, you know, and I talked to Brandon Brandon about this when he was on the podcast about, you know, I admit that my first reaction was, oh, this is sexist. What are they doing? And um, I remember at the time my
1: line was, "Oh, it's the Seven of Nine show, also starring the cast of Voyager." Voyager,
0: right? And so she became a very interesting character because her story was fascinating to take somebody from being a Borg, and you know we did it so quick with Jean-Luc Picard because we had to. We had to move well, on. He was
1: also only he was assimilated only for a matter of hours. Not. Where- not you know, her her seven childhood. has come out after 18 years of stolen childhood, no less stolen childhood, adolescence and young adulthood, all of her formative years stripped and stolen away from her. When and the rest of us, take granted that we're finding out who we are. She lost all that time.
0: Right. And all those things make her an interesting character. And then yeah. also what makes this book an interesting time for seven. And for you as a writer is that that loss of that st- that safety net of voyager and having to also like you know she was in the delta quadrant now she's you know they've all got homes to go to they've all got families to go to she has the one aunt you know she was still flinches
1: when she hugs her because of the implants and who dead makes her because she can't call her seven
0: right now let's talk about the whole um now you when you approached this now you've been very clear that you wanted to tell people because there are the people who are, I don't know how this happens in Star Trek, how there's people that are
1: afraid of, of that are angry about it being woke. Woke, right. And yeah. um, I which... didn't want anyone to feel like they were misled into buying a book thinking it's an action thing with no progressive message whatsoever. Uh, I wanted to be very clear up front. uh, this book pro woke pro trans pro queer. I make no bones about it it is her seven is an iconic character to the queer and trans community she is important to them she is uh, you know a, a, a transformative character for them so she had to be treated with respect and those aspects of what she represents had to be acknowledged to not acknowledge them would be to do a disservice to the character and a disservice to the fans
0: yeah and one that. That when um, and I highly uh, recommend people go back and check out my interview with Brandon Braga. Um, I did two, did one on specifically on Orville season three. But um, when when we talked about this, I we we talked for a little bit about the idea also of Seven being an icon, much like Spock, much like Data of autism. Um, yeah, being, for being an feedback- outsider
1: yeah we're feeling like a freak
0: yeah and and especially now you know i my day job i work with kids with autism so um and and so being the the idea not so much of kids with like serious autism but like for people who uh, i don't want to say non i guess that comes off sounding weird but for people on the spectrum seven is definitely an icon too because um her social anxiety and is things that they can relate to. And so those things are important as well about seven and her being a hero for all these parts of the community. And, you know, some people don't understand the trans things, but also she's that because she, um, you know, had to establish her own identity. She had to recreate herself from you know having been you know part of a collective like Mm -hmm. of another species so this is all very important stuff and i think one of the things you're doing david that's really great with this novel is taking all that very seriously so what part of the process i mean you had to how early on were you like it's gonna be all these things from the very beginning was that i knew from the
1: beginning that that was what i wanted it to be i knew that the parts of her that are Borg that have been grafted to her that can't physically be removed and which are very visible therefore uh, to those around her. I thought that that made an excellent allegory uh, for both trans identity and queer identity in that it marks her as a minority. It marks her as somebody who is visibly different uh, and therefore someone is going to be you know, the, the subject of either fear or suspicion um, or, or even just persecution and so i figured between that and the fact that there's an issue that comes up in picard season three uh where todd stashwick's character uh captain liam shaw is deliberately dead naming her he does it because he knows it ticks her off and he's got his whole problem with the board yeah and it's such a dick move that he's doing it but it shows that the practice continues and they know it's a dick move um and so I was like, okay, so let's take that back. Let's roll the clock back 20 years where someone isn't doing it just to get a rise out of her. They're doing it, A, maybe they don't know better, or B, because they're in denial that she really would want to keep her Borg designation, which is the identity that she now possesses and has come to own. She has owned who she is. Yeah. Um,
0: because that was so- what her name was on Voyager, and that was her first home.
1: Right. So, yeah. and she and she isn't Annika anymore. That name doesn't mean anything to her. And people who insist on continuing to push this identity on her that she has outgrown, that she doesn't identify with, uh, it's an insult to her. It's an insult to her independence. It's an insult to her autonomy. Uh, and, it's an insult to her independence.
0: And it's a reminder of the trauma of being taken
1: by the Borg as well. Yeah, which also doesn't uh, do anybody any favors. Right. So, yeah, so, so there's that. So that is an issue that will come up through the book and factors into the ending, which you haven't gotten to yet. So I'll try not to spoil that too much. Um, and one of the things that you know, is that is that that is a recurring theme and it plays through the book. And the, the fact that she also is canonically a queer character, uh, thanks to Picard, uh, meant that that also had to be addressed and again had to be addressed respectfully. Uh, and seriously so uh, mm-hmm. I, I approached that in sort of having her going through this phase of her life you know having discovered this aspect of herself and she's exploring this and you know trying to put it in context of who she is and who she wants to be so through the course of the book she's going to meet the character who I think of as the first great love of her life which is going to be this Trill woman Ellery Cade a fellow Fenris Ranger mm-hmm. and they're going to basically you know it's like a a moment of magnetic connection when they first meet there's definitely a, a potential in the air everybody around them can sense you know something's happening here and then you know they basically bond you know she's going to be there for ellery when something goes wrong and ellery needs somebody to step in and save her ass ellery's going to be there when seven needs her um, and they're just gonna basically bond and like some of the tropes that i know sometimes uh, drive you know queer fans crazy because they just keep coming up are things like bury your gaze. Um, mm. Not in this book. Not this <laughs> awesome. Book. Uh, yeah. You know The tragic queer. Oh, yeah, sure. She, they can have the relationship, but it has to end tragically. Not this one. No, screw it. I had no use for it. That's out the airlock. Bye-bye. The person awesome. of color who must die to show the situation is serious. Nope. No thanks. Couldn't use it. We'll kill the white guy. He, he can go. But the interesting person of color, Lucan Sagasta, the you know, Fenris Ranger described as having dark brown skin and a white Cheshire Cat smile, who's constantly joking around and is said to be the ladies' man and the hotshot. He gets through the story unscathed. <laughs> He's going to stick around. He's not going anywhere. And so. um, I,
0: one interesting thing about, because I was paying attention to your post when you were working on this book, so I, I kind of saw... Um, because I've been following this one from the beginning because this is one I wanted. This is one I wanted to eject right into my veins. And <laughs> uh, so when you were writing this, I was noting the interesting meta nature of what was going on in the world with the actors who, you know, with Jerry Ryan and, uh, you know, Michelle Heard being leaders of the, you the know, sag, yeah, of the SAG actress strike. And Jerry I, Ryan's
1: I, a goddamn hero.
0: Yeah, and so I, I, I'm sure that that kind of influenced your your some of the feeling and vibe of of what was going on for this, right? Because you were writing this when this was all going on.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I I mean from the very beginning, I knew that I wanted the character to you know, for, for want of a better term, to be a social justice warrior. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, a lot of the themes of a lot of the punk that I love best. It is a lot of it is socially conscious. There's a lot of righteous fury at social injustice, um, especially you know in the music that inspired this particular book and this uh, take on the character. So I wanted that to come through. I wanted her to be someone who, because of her past, because of the way the Borg used her to hurt other people, because of the way that she was used in that method she feels like she's on a, a journey of atonement, that she's seeking redemption. Uh, so she is looking for something where she, a, a, a path in life that will let her be there to defend the weak and the helpless, to uh, you know, stand up against those who would pray uh, on the less fortunate, to be there to you know basically stand up for what's right, to defend those who would have otherwise nobody to defend them. Uh, as she says near the end of the book, which we haven't got to, the impetus for the title is where she tells Janeway, "When governments abandon their people, I plan to be there, you know, to defend the innocent from evil. I will be the firewall that defends the innocent from evil." And that's her. Her that's how she sees herself. She wants to be that person, you know, the the watcher on the wall who keeps evil at bay. Uh,
0: any? and Have you? Uh reached out to jerry ryan in, in any of this I I, uh, uh, just
1: just uh, the other day I, I happened to compliment her for the you know bringing the character to life with you know such complexity and nuance while i was talking about my hopes for the book she didn't repost it but she did click like so i and i screenshotted that so she did like the post granted i i had to tag her and compliment her <laughs> But, you know, she clicked like. Maybe next time we'll get her to repost, but baby steps.
0: Yeah, I, you know, she's busy. She was she's was her. she got a lot
1: going on.
0: Yeah, um, I would figure eventually she's going to find it. Um, she's One probably uh, bummed she didn't get to do her Fenris Ranger show, but she'll take being the captain of the Enterprise, right? Yeah, so, yeah uh, if, if that
1: should come about, then uh, that would be, I think, a consolation prize most people could live with
0: yeah um i i'm i don't know anything for anything but uh um, one of my fears to. is that legacy is not happening to to punish some of the some of that leadership or that we haven't gotten announcements or whatever i can't say that that's real it just i, it got I, a I can't leader. i
1: can't speak to that speculation at all i'm sorry
0: yeah so um so you know one of the things that really um or like one of the my favorite interactions that we've had um talking about Star Trek through the internet um was when how, how upset you got about um the the person standing on Prodigy <laughs> inside the warp bubble I, I believe it was or was it the protostar it was the protostar they were standing on and um we had a whole discussion after the episode where that we, and you were like that's not how warp bubbles work. And I loved that you uh, took the time. It was like a Friday night. And I got this very long comment from David Mack on my Facebook about how warp bubbles work. And I was like, God, what a glorious nerd. Uh, I love this.
1: Um, I mean, uh, I mean, the whole thing about merging warp bubbles, you know, is uh, it was devised for a specific purpose. And that's the exact opposite. Everything we were ever told about you know the synchronization of warp bubbles everything in canon says the exact opposite of what they did i'm like how did you look at the same reference material that i looked at and draw the exact opposite conclusion of what it says in black and white it is that's like saying well it says it's white therefore it must be black no right (sighs) Now. now
0: They did not listen to you on the warp bubble. You rose. You brought that up. I know you did, and they. Did oh, not- I
1: flagged it. No, actually, what? maybe. Yeah, yeah, I would have flagged it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you flagged it for them. They did not listen to you, but they did listen to you on the finale, and you did have a big impact on the emotional. On some
1: things, but not on others. Right. No, There's but- one element of the finale I wish they had taken my advice on. They did not, and I don't know how it plays out because uh, I was only employed on season one, the first 20 episodes. Uh, the upcoming second season, which will premiere on Netflix, uh, I was not uh, working on that one. So I was right. already sort of out of the picture when they uh, convened the writer's room for that. So I don't know where they go with it, but I know the one thing I sort of suggested and got overruled on for the season one finale was you know, they, they, they've come home to Earth or they've reached Earth they've gone through all this sort of stuff and somehow they, you know, they concoct away a a reason, a rationale to put these guys on the protostar or on whatever the new ship is, you know, the, the new, you know, the new protostar type ship. And I guess they used like one suggestion I gave them, which was, you know, you can make them warrant officers, which is like below a real officer, but above an enlisted man. And it's used for technical specialists and, I think they found that to be useful. So they took that. But I said, at the time, you know, the note I sent back the first time was, you know, you guys have a brilliant opportunity here to do something Star Trek has never done, and which could open up a ton of possibilities, no one has ever had. I said, don't put them on a Starfleet ship, put them on a civilian diplomatic transport, one that has some defenses it's got shields it's maybe got some weaponry for self-defense but nothing on the level of a a capital ship in starfleet put them on a diplomatic vessel with the starfleet you know the, the federation diplomatic corps uh you know diplomats ambassadors cultural specialists you can have a whole range of interesting folks go civilian i go they don't have to go through the academy you don't have to explain why they skipped four years at the academy uh, you know, you, I said, you, you bypass all that and you keep your character design as it is without having to suddenly put them all into Starfleet uniforms and rob each of them of their individuality. Said so you keep your character designs, you keep them as civilians, you evade the whole Starfleet Academy problem and you send them out on a civilian ship. I said because it's a civilian ship, Prime Directive doesn't apply. Prime Directive only applies to Starfleet. They don't want the military getting involved in other people's crap diplomats do this shit all the time they yeah. did it all the time on track diplomats go out there and mess with people's crap all the time i said put them on a diplomatic transport and then send them back to gwyn's people i said it's the perfect excuse who else would you send if you're trying to make peaceful contact with the van you'd send them back their own people and you'd send if you know that the first time through the first time loop that sending a starfleet ship caused mayhem well maybe don't send a starfleet ship maybe the trick is to send civilians and send them people they recognize who they can talk to uh, they didn't see any value that's in it's
0: brilliant that. it's brilliant well and i that's what uh, i would have
1: suggested that's the way i would have gone
0: I think the the warrant officer thing too it puts them with Janeway. That's smart too. I can see that. I, I there's love the, well, there's
1: arguments in favor of going both ways. I just yeah. I felt like it would have given them a personality and an identity that Star Trek has never had before. It would have allowed them to chart completely new ground, to not be beholden to anything that's been established before. I mean, they could have just been trailblazers all the way. Right. Uh, but well. but at the same time star trek is associated so strongly with starfleet and that aesthetic that i could see the value in wanting to preserve that connection
0: well and and anyone who's listened to I, i do i do a panel after every season of star trek on with with some of my some of my peeps here and anybody who's listened to my episodes know i've been saying forever i i would love to have a star trek show that was uh an old Starfleet ship being reused by journalists going around that's an excuse to be trekking around the federation like you know covering stories you get into adventures doing that and then you you know you have a whole new thing too and what and so a lot of them are probably saying like oh these guys think alike because by putting them in a diplomatic corps ship or having a they they're out of the safety net which is of starfleet right
1: yeah yeah Yeah. now you're right here and you have to survive by well talking your way out of things you can't shoot your way out now you've got to basically find a diplomatic solution that's your job that's the whole idea
0: well yeah and so for mine it's always i'm always thinking like what, what about spotlight in the star trek universe you know like a bunch of reporters on a ship I would love to see that.
1: I just uh, want to see I mean, I think that the fact that they're all reporters uh, on a ship maybe is a bit limiting. Uh, I could see, for instance, you know, you've got a a, a reporter embedded on a ship. Uh, like for instance, there's a, a, a like mm-hmm. when I got my start writing for track uh, in in prose, it was on a monthly ebook novella series called Starfleet Corps of Engineers.
0: Oh yeah Artiver or- awesome. talked about you working with you on those on, yeah. On, yeah
1: and uh, Keith DeCandido was the editor uh, on most of those. I worked a lot with Keith and the idea was you had uh, ships devoted to the Starfleet Corps of Engineers and they were you know, smaller ships, not your big ships you know these were you know little ships crew of maybe 40 50 people. And a lot of them, you know, you had some core crew whose job was run the ship, but you also had the rest of it was engineering mission specialists. Now, You had a special, you know, specialist in mechanical engineering. You had Mm -hmm. those were geologists.
0: They were really. You you have
1: all these engineering specialists. Now imagine a a core of engineers ship with an embedded journalist. Mm -hmm. Well, I was
0: thinking you have a crew that's there to take care of them and do the crew things and they're at odds all the time with the journalists who are like, you know, this is, they run the ship and we do, you know, we're the ones that run the the news division and then you kind of have that. The trick kind
1: of- is, uh, the problem there is that the, the people who run the ship in any matter involving the ship, they're always going to win because you cannot run any ship, even a civilian okay. ship, as a democracy. A ship is always a dictatorship by necessity because if it isn't, everyone's going to die sure now so
0: when you to get back to firewall and to what you know you're doing with this um are we going to get more Fenris ranger books if uh is there more do you have you under planned yeah
1: now if we, i want this to be a standalone story
0: okay but now um, if we get enough people out there buying this could you fit in some
1: possibly write another Fenris Rangers adventure with uh you know Seven and her new partner slash lover Ellery Cade and the lovable band of uh, Fenris Ranger rogues getting into you know frontier adventure hell yeah it could be done it would not be the same type of book uh, thematically it would probably be different there'd have to be a different journey uh, of you know different theme a different lesson for Seven to absorb but yeah I mean, if the book sold so well that Simon and Chester had to go, well, we should make more of these. Um, well, see, now I, you I, got your I mission out
0: there, listeners, like yeah. help help sell sell this book so we can get more. That's, I mean,
1: so it, I'm not going to say it's impossible; it could happen. I, of course, I'm kind of hoping they'll tap me to write a Strange New World novel at some point, but you know, you never know. Uh, but uh, I, I wouldn't say to no to, to uh, another another visit of seven.
0: Right, uh, God, I'd I'd love to see your take on Strange New Worlds, um, but you know the thing about this part of the the um, expanding universe is that I, one thing that I can feel your joy on is that when you tell the story about like pausing the show and immediately writing your editor, like I'm sure you were just pinching yourself writing a, a lot of this, like and getting to tell it, and it comes off on the page.
1: So. Yeah, and uh, I think part of what also comes through on the page is that I really identify you know, with these characters I'm writing because as a kid, I was you know, the favorite target of the bullies pretty much from the beginning of, say, middle school all the way through almost the end of high school. Uh, I know what it's like to be afraid to leave your house because you don't know if you're going to make it to the bus stop without getting your ass kicked. Uh, I know what it's like to fear recess. Uh, I remember having... know my personal belongings defaced uh my car you know graffitied uh i remember being the outcast i remember being the target the 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 weirdo the one they don't understand and therefore i must be there must be something wrong with me so i remember being the guy who took the uh and i didn't really get to enjoy life uh, and basically just be me until I got to college. And I had to leave town and come all the way to New York City. I, I left the small town I grew up in and I came to New York at 18 and I just never left. I've been here 36, 37 years now because I came to New York. And once I got here, I, I was able to be the me I wanted to be. I came here and I left behind the baggage of who I was. And became who I wanted to be. Uh, And part of that too was, you know, uh, legally I changed my name after college to match that of my stepfather who raised me. So I understand the difficulty of, you know, changing one's name, what, you know, the significance of that is in terms of how it relates to one's perception of self identity. So I really, you know, had a personal stake emotionally uh, in what these characters, and particularly seven, are going through uh i was able to find analogs for a lot of it for the alienation the the loneliness the fear uh the sense of persecution uh i was able to find analogs for all of it in my own past and it made me sympathetic to the character uh in a very tangible way
0: well and people are rightfully very excited about and want Star Trek Legacy to become a thing and it could not hurt if a book like this uh really like flies off the shelves. Flies off the shelves. So uh if you so I'm not gonna say you could make Star Trek Legacy happen by reading firewall and buying it. All I'm gonna say
1: is if the if the if, if my book helps in some way bring about legacy, I just hope they put me in the room. Just just <laughs> just put me in the writer's room, please, please. Yeah. Um, I'll even be quiet. I'll sit in the corner. I won't eat too much at lunch. I won't take all the good sushi.
0: <laughs> well, and uh you know, I I really appreciate the vibe and the energy on this one. Before we go really quick, um do you if people are like, well, they're already on their way to 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 buy this book online, they want to pick up another David Max Star Trek book. Is there one that you particularly have close to your heart that is another star trek book because you've written i don't even know how many like Uh, a
1: lot uh, this one i believe uh firewall is my 31st uh, (laughs) star trek novel wow Uh, i've written uh, 38 39 novels total but yeah this is 31 for star trek um, which at this point makes me the third most prolific author of Star Trek novels in the history of the franchise. I am one Star Trek novel contract away from tying for second place, and two uh, two contracts away from taking second place.
0: Wow! And, and is second place still Michael Jan active? Friedman? Is who?
1: Michael Jan Friedman still uh, alive, but not uh, currently not active.
0: So life. you can you can you can take. You can take, he's written a lot of really good Star Trek too.
1: He did. He is one of the acclaimed masters. Yeah, Uh, And I will never catch up to number one, which is Peter David uh, at 45. He had the advantage, however, of writing during an era when they were publishing two Star Trek books a month, as opposed to five a year, which is what they do now. Uh, And back then the Star Trek novels were about 70,000 words apiece. And now they're about a hundred to 120 So the level of difficulty under which I operate is a bit higher. Uh, The competition, a lot meaner. Uh, The opportunities, many fewer. The fact that I've made it as far as I have is kind of remarkable. Uh, So if I was going to steer somebody toward other Trek work, I guess my most enduring work is the Star Trek Destiny trilogy. Mm. It's no longer in continuity. Picard pretty much uh undid the literary continuity of the last 20 years of star trek books but for about 20 years there from around 2003 to about maybe or actually 2001 up to about 2021 the star trek books had their own sort of self-contained continuity set after the finales of the tv shows and after most of the movies and we changed the status quo we changed characters lives we altered the state of the galaxy and the changes carried forward in a serial manner from book to book author to author coordinated by the authors themselves and by the editors and a lot of what set big changes in motion in that version of the trek universe in the literary universe was my star trek destiny trilogy which can be described as the all-time final showdown end-all be-all between Federation and the Borg two civilizations enter only one leaves uh, and you actually find out the origin the Alpha of the Borg and the ending the Omega of the Borg. Uh, you an astute reader might notice. Some minor similarities between that and season three of Picard.
0: Right. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> um, David, it was awesome talking to you about firewall. Um, I will be do posting a very detailed review uh, when uh, I look forward I, to it when I get nope. to it. But you can already know part of it's going to be the andor of the start of modern Star Trek. That's
1: a pull quote for the ages, brother.
0: Yeah, and um, I I firmly believe that. Uh, If people have stuck with us this far, um, I do have one announcement I gotta make. Uh, My next science fiction novel, People's Park, um, comes out in March and I'm doing a book release party in the town it takes place in, Bloomington, Indiana, the day before, April 7th, the day before the total solar eclipse. So you can come to Indiana and go to the book review or the book release party and stay for the planets aligning and the sun going dark. Uh, we're one of the best places in the country to see it. So, and I should note, and this is why you should be listening, trekkers, that the Bloomington, Indiana festivities are hosted by one William Shatner. And uh yes, so William Shatner is apparently singing a song right before the solar eclipse at...
1: Oh, stadium. I hope it's not tambourine man.
0: I hope not. But he is a, he is hosting the Indiana University festivities at the Memorial Stadium in Bloomington, Indiana. So you can come for my book release party the day before and stay for that. So people words Park,
1: Stay for the darkness.
0: Right. People's Park is a coming-of-age... It's a punk rock coming of age science fiction novel set in 1989, Indiana, with skateboards, not bikes. Uh <laughs> and some really weird shit goes on. And it's very Phil Dickian for those of my peeps who like Phil K Dick. So um highly recommend people come out for that. And uh, but more importantly, right now, pick up firewall. Uh, spread the word. Um, tell your libraries to make sure they have it. Most libraries carry Star Trek stuff, but if they don't have it, tell them. Um, I and tell just... them it's a
1: hardcover, so it'll last a good long time on the shelf.
0: That's right. So tell your library, and um, I'm sure eventually you'll get a paperback release, and maybe we'll come back and probably do about it. a year from now. Yeah. So maybe when you do paperback, we'll do a spoiler heavy. We can can dig
1: into more story-specific analysis of it.
0: That's right.
1: So look forward to that. I would love that.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, uh, you gave me a lot of great insight, and I appreciate that. Um, And I hope folks enjoyed this. Uh, David, you're one of my favorite Star Trek nerds. I will never forget the warp bubble, 10 o'clock on a Friday night Uh, (laughs) commentary was... I just, I remember responding to it saying you are a glorious nerd, sir. Thank you for saying this. And (laughs) and I meant it. I meant it. Uh, So thank you. Um, And I hope folks enjoyed this. And we will be back. The next episode of this here podcast is The Roads Must Roll from 1940 by Robert Heinlein featuring Ted Hand and Juan San Miguel. Uh, breaking down that story and next we're doing Theodore Sturgeon's Microcosmic God so that's going to be a doozy and I got some big guests for that one so come back for those two hopefully talk to you folks soon thank you David for your time
1: thank you for having me on it's been a blast